to the complete Agnes Varda. This is episode seven, Daguerreotypes. I'm Matt Gasteyer, here as usual with my co-host Travis Trudell. Hello, Travis. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, you know, getting through, ready for it to be warm out. That, that's not going to make any sense to the people who are listening to this because... We are um, banking quite a few episodes before we put them out, but <laughs> just so everybody knows, it's about to get warm in the Boston area. It is. It's super exciting. Uh, it's finally, you know, it's cold in the morning and warm in the afternoons, yeah. which is exactly what spring is supposed to be. No more of this false winter stuff, so it'll be nice. Yeah, very exciting. Um, so today we are going to talk about uh, a movie that uh well it's a it's an interesting movie uh and again i think we're faced with the issue of like is this a movie that seems very much like what on its surface it appears to be or is it the movie that anis farda seems to have uh wanted wanted to tell um but we'll get into that. I mean, I, the first thing uh, just to say here is that, you know, um, this is a film that was uh, created for German television. They told her to make a movie for them. And she said, uh, and, you know, they basically said, like, make whatever you want to make. Uh, and I guess smartly, she decided not to make a movie about Greece. Nice. Yeah, well, you know, she already made one and that didn't work out. Did not work out. So, um, and she, you know, she was, uh, she had just had her second child. Um, and the concept behind this movie, she says, it was to um, film a movie entirely uh, within. I think it's a 200 foot radius of her uh, house because that was as long as the cord for the, uh, for the equipment would go. And uh, that would allow her to stay in a close radius with her son, uh, who was, I think around two or three at the time. Um, so in a way the film and, and she did this not just, um, to be near her son, although obviously she wanted to be near her son. And I think it, it's a, you know, neat idea, but I think she also did it as kind of like a performance art piece. She, she sort of turned the film, the process of making the film, which is not mentioned or included anywhere within the text of the film, um, into its own work of art in a sense, because it was a film about, a uh, a woman director who was a also a mother um essentially being tied to her child with an umbilical cord as she made the film yes there's many all kinds of symbolism in what she's doing uh, you know that also kind of ties into the film she made because not only is she tied to the area she's in because of uh of her career and her, and what she is at that time, a mother, but also most all the shopkeepers that she is visiting also are tied to 
that same exact radius because you can't leave your store. You have to be there in case the customer comes in because that's the nature of of customer relationships. You have to be waiting for them to show up to buy stuff and then you're on and it's almost the same exact thing. She's showing us the all the moments of the the lead up into financial transactions. And so she's, uh, you know, as much as she's uh, tethered to that area, they're also tethered to their areas. Um, and so it becomes a little, it, it both showcases that she belongs in that area just as much as they do and also shows that they all have um, careers that keep them from being able to sometimes... Uh, you know, move as freely as they would like. So um, I know that she had lots of, she had s expressed some regrets about uh, being away from her daughter for long stints and trying to take her onto projects and it didn't work and kind of leaving her with someone else so she can finish things. And so she was trying to make a go of it with her second child uh, and be a little more um, attentive. But as she pointed out, it really didn't work because... <laughs> She once she gets going into making a film, she's really not paying attention to anything else. Well, and her daughter's in the movie. Uh, yep. her, old, her older um, child was it Rosalie, I think. Yeah, um, who we've we've met um, at an older age in the bonus features for uh, Les Bonheur. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear what your initial thoughts are on the, this film, and um, and you know, I mean, we we can dive right into it because I, I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting angles from which to approach this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a kind of like a slow moving documentary about the processes that people go through. So like, you know, people getting ready for work, people preparing things, uh, people doing their jobs, like for some reason, I am completely drawn to that. Um, I think I can't remember which. Uh, there's a a critic who once said that uh, you know the reason why people are fascinated with something like crime movies or heist movies is because it's movies of people doing their job really well, and that concept translates to here as well. Watching the baker bake things, the butcher cut meat, just just watching these people do their craft. Um, is super fascinating to me. Um, but also the idea that I think this movie really only works as something to watch in the future about the past. Mm. I can't imagine like the reception. I was trying to read like, uh, uh, you know, just reviews about it as it was released in the time. And it became, it was just became lots of kind of like quaint and, you know, uh, you know, just kind of like this would be, you know, some even said boring, just like watching these people do stuff. Um, so it didn't seem to get tons of critical praise, but the peep that people of the area really liked it. So I always, I just, I think that because we're watching in the past, it's it is a window into a different time. Uh, you know, this is what everyone is thinking about in the nostalgia machine for what the way life used to be. 
Um, you know, you have all these shops with one specialty and these people who for years are the guy that cuts your meat or the person that cuts your hair and nothing changes. And, you know, it's this sense of community that is also part of the, uh, the financial structure in which you participate in in that area. But it's also about a bigger idea of like just of jobs itself. Like what does it mean to have a career? What does it mean to have a job? What does it mean to have a craft? Um, Cause all these people are, are craftsmen. There's a difference between like a job, like, you know, the, the, I don't know. I always think of people sitting in cubicles on computers. I don't know what half of those people do in real life. Um, but I just know that they do them. There's so many people I know in my life where I, I can never remember what their job is because it just sounds made up. And so <laughs> like having craftsmen actually doing work with their hands or physical things, I under, I, I, I grasp that. So seeing these people, tradesmen, craftsmen doing the work that they were, that they were taught and then going on to own their own place. Cause that used to be their, the dream, right? You go and work for a barber that barber teaches you everything they know. You either take over their business or you move to a town without a barber and you take or and you open up shop. And it's that 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 was the way things went for years and years and years. Apprenticeships, tradesmen. And so to see these people, which most of them are on the other side of potentially this will be the last time their shop and then it'll go away. Like the blue thistle always sticks out to me as like, there is no shop like that anymore. Yeah. A man making his own perfume, having weird little ephemera to sell like buttons or a piece of lace or it just like these odd things that you could only find at a store like that. Now you have to like scour the internet and buy a bag of 500 buttons when all you need is one. <laughs> and this guy has that one that you need. So it's, it's just such an interesting thing. And I'm interested to hear what your take on the movie is, because it sounds like you have some angles that you want to discuss that I'm always <laughs> like, okay, did I just do a surface dive of this and just really enjoyed it? And Matt's got like all these like little points to make. And I'm like, Ooh, that's good. I didn't think <laughs> no, of that. You know what? Like I agree a hundred percent with everything you just said. Um, this movie to me is like a warm hug. Yeah. You know, I just like love living in films like this. Um, you know, there's a little bit of Wiseman in here for sure. Although the tone is totally different than, than Wiseman. Um, and there's also, um, you know, I just watched the Pasolini movie Love Meetings, where he's basically like going around Italy asking people what they think uh, uh, about sex in general, like sexual mm -hmm. issues, um, which was a delight and just super fascinating. And like you said, like a real time capsule, you know, you're able to kind of get a sense of at least what these particular people who were willing to be interviewed on camera thought about sex in Italy in the mid sixties. What a priceless thing that is awesome to be able to have, you know? Right. And, and I think, um, you know, another example of that is the mall documentary, um, uh, Oh boy, it's uh, uh now I forgot the name of it. Um, oh, Louis Mall, the uh, manufactured uh, the the one the one in the small town in America. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, 
I'm gonna blank the name. It's, it's in like the, it's in the God, eclipse set. Yeah, it's like under one nation under God. Yes, there you like go. That. Yep. I forget the name of it. Um, you know, I could just watch a million of these things, um, and I, I just, you know, I find these people endlessly fascinating. You know, my dream is to like, like I always, I always wish that there was a video game where it was there was nothing to do in the video game. It was just like an open world video game. And all the game was, was you would just be able to walk up to literally any person that you saw and just be like, hey, what's your deal? And they would have to answer like any question that you asked them. That's fantastic. Like to me, that's, you know, like one of the most valuable things that that cinema can can give you is that opportunity to look into somebody else's world and to hear their thoughts and opinions and you know, if they turn out to be somebody who's incredibly fascinating, you get to live in that world. If they turn out to be a total creep, you get to be like, well, it's only a movie. I never need to meet that person. <laughs> yeah. And this is all this is all like pre everyone being media savvy. Like, yeah, there, there's no more of this like simple. Yeah, sure. You can film me baking bread. Right. Everyone. Everyone knows what that means. And everyone knows that they're going to be famous or on or and so just the having these people be so guardedly open, like you could still see they're kind of like, sure. what's this lady doing? But at the same time, they're they succumb to kind of like her charms and her ways and they start answering her questions and they start, you know, where we're from and where where we came from and, you know. And, I, you know, she your, talks about that. What a are your bit. dreams? I, I forget where she took talked about it um it may have been there's an incredible well it's funny that i think that they, they characterize it in the in the book in the uh the uh anna sparta um interviews book mm-hmm. um there's there's an, a quote-unquote interview where somebody reached out to varda and basically like they said that they were going to do like a uh Oh, wait, did you sense back a manifesto? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, yeah, she, yeah, she called it a, uh, she, she set out for an interview and came back with a long monologue. Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) That, that write up from Varda is to me the most valuable thing that I've read from Mm -hmm. her um, on anything. And I, I highly recommend it to anybody who's, who's into her. I think that, that this was in that. But she yeah, talks about it's in how, that book. She talks about how. Well, no, I'm saying this story, the particular oh, story. Oh, good. Sorry. Um, she talks about how uh, at first these people were extremely wary of interacting with her, and like, you know, they they knew her as this famous filmmaker. You know, everybody in the neighborhood knew who she was, and it was only through the process of her being there all day them watching her set up her camera set up the sound get ready for the shots also waiting around with them like you said like they're mm-hmm. waiting for each customer varda and her her camera woman were were also wait sitting around waiting for something to happen and they started to recognize the craft in what she was doing and the hard work in what she did and they recognized that you know in themselves and sort of a mutual respect was generated out of that process because the filmmaking 
process is a craft and it is uh, hard work and it's long hours and it's not as glamorous as it sounds like it is when you read about it in, in the news or see it, see the filmmaker on TV. Um, and I, I thought that that was, uh, you know, really fascinating aspect of this, you know, there, I think in some ways she set out to make a movie about people that were different than her and they're, they're eventually generated some sort of a recognition of similarities, I think, across the boundaries that she had set for herself. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Cause that's a, that's kind of like that. That's the beauty of something like a documentary like this. You set these guidelines up for yourself and you kind of, you kind of just exist in the space. I mean, that's a total like Wiseman type documentary where he's just there and he just rolling for days on in yeah. certain angles just to capture a good a good chunk of kind of what's going on but you know the the way that she went about doing hers is just you know you could tell that there's probably other people that she photographed or got kind of with but really didn't get anything of value and she kind of cut it to the side i'm like i'm super surprised at the amount of talking and visuals of the accordion shop that we have no interviews with the accordion Mm. shop people (laughs) yeah that's true so you know that kind of stuff it's great because it's you know you always are hearing that sound in the background the uh, the accordion players and you see the accordion players walking the streets so you see the kids practicing yeah. their accordion and it's still there the shop it's still there yeah and it's just a different different shade or at of, least it was twenty years yeah, ago orange or yeah. yellow to orange I yeah. think was the color change um, there were a lot of things in what you said that that I want to touch on and I'm I'm withholding my kind of big big okay. fat question nice. Um, because I want to sort of bask in the enjoyable nature of this film first. Um, the, the first thing is just the idea that, you know, this is a more enjoyable film now than it probably was when it came out. And mm. I, I, I agree with that. I think one, one thing it reminded me of was, you know, speaking of Wiseman, um, the film Belfast uh, yeah. that he made, that when it was made... Um, and screened in Belfast, they were horrified oh, by, completely. by what they saw. And I think probably rightly so. Matt, I mean, it, do you know I worked on that movie? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to, to <laughs> I was a to, camera to assistant it. on that movie. Yeah, yeah. I which I think is like so cool. Two days and I was just like, wow, this movie is, people are going to hate this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's a movie about death. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's about the death of New England, essentially. And... Mm. So, you know, you don't really want a movie about death to be made with the title of your town. (laughs) It's a documentary about your town. Um, But, uh, you know, they they have screened the film there. Uh, You know, I think they screened it for the 20th anniversary um, five or so years ago. And um, people were extremely receptive to it. And they, they think of it now as this unique incredible time capsule Mm. um a representation of their portrait of their town that you know there's things in there that they're never going to get back there's there's a nostalgia to it and there's also the sense of like you know this major filmmaker came and you know essentially painted a portrait of what my town was like and we get to have this forever now 
um, which is a really incredible thing. But I, I think the, the interesting thing about nostalgia in this case is that these um, shops were already seen as sort of being from another era at yeah. the time that this movie was being made. And, you know, a lot of these um, shop owners are in their 60s and 70s and 80s. They've been there for 40 and 50 years, some of them, in the same shop. And, you know, I don't think anybody took over that perfume shop when that no. guy died. Well, you, you know, know who took over it? Agnes Varda. Oh, really? That's her, uh, that's her, uh, that's, she sells DVDs out of that window now. Oh my God, that's too funny. Did Is that, that in some of the, yeah, that's the like, documentary? I don't I think, think it's I'd like one it. of the last things she says at the end of like the thing. She says, oh, in okay. the blue thistle. Well, now it has a storefront of all my DVDs that I want to sell. That's right. That's <laughs> like, right. I wow. That a, a she, I mean, ago. that means she loved that store. You know what I mean? Like that's that yeah. connection. She sees this thing that is probably going to get turned into something that is, you know, well, I mean, going back to what you're saying, like, yeah, these stores were on their way out. I mean, if she had a longer tether of her cord, we would go to the far end of the Daguerre, the Rue Daguerre, and you'd see the malls and the bazaar and the the more modern stores that were taking right. over that whole area at that time. And when um, she made the movie, the, the people who lived on the street were horrified by the movie because they, she wasn't showing those things. Mm-hmm. She was showing the you know, what they perceived of as like the rundown, you know, they, they made, they thought that it made their neighborhood look bad, um, to be presented this way, just like the, the people in Belfast, um, felt that way. But it is a good reminder that like in, in, you know, late 1970s Paris, there were people who were fretting about gentrification and, longing for the good old days of old Paris and you know there's all like it's just a good reminder you know when I when I lived in New York City uh, everybody was like oh the old New York is gone now I go back to New York City and everybody's like oh remember the New York City of when you were here it was so much better you know like there's just always that sense of like oh you know this isn't the real city like you like you should know it like it's changed it's different it's not the same um you know and i think that's what makes documents like this so valuable um because it is sort of a a proof of of what existed then and also that the same sort of complexities were there at the time even as they are now yeah people people have a really hard time embracing change change is something that is scary to so many people and what's what's sad is that it's inevitable the more you try to not have things change the harder it is for you to change because it's going to change anyway it's the nature of everything everything is in a state of change you're in a state of change the world's in a state of change it's always changing so it's it's fascinating that people are so put off by the concept of change because it should be like I mean, I guess that goes right hand in hand with, you know, the fact that we all die. People still don't buck against that and think they're yeah. going to live forever. And change goes in that because the more things change, the more you're getting closer to the end. And you don't want to have that final change happen. It's, yeah, uh, it's, I'm not going to die, though. Oh, I know you're not, Matt. Yeah. We've already had that conversation. Right. 
Um, but no, it's a, um, that idea that, you know, we're not showing the best parts about this community and we're not, uh, and it's, it's fascinating because people only want to show the things that they're proud of. They don't want to, they don't want to show the dingy, dirty parts. You know, we got to clean the house before we have company over. People can't see that we live normal as well. And so to have her lull them into being one of them and showing uh, how things really are at that point, you know, even as they're about to, they're on the cusp of a complete and total, um, paradigm shift in terms of uh, new technologies replacing these old styles um, it's it's fascinating because those are the those are the documents you need to kind of really uh, take a look back and see how how things were I mean as as there's a craftsman movement going on in the United States you know people wanting to bring back like small shops you know, hand, hand making things, butcheries, you know, everything happening again, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And as we move away from fabricated things and, uh, you know, big box stores and stuff, you see, you see that this is kind of like what everyone is trying to go back to. But even then, it, it wasn't always the best, <laughs> you know, that's a hard life. Some of those people are living really hard lives yeah. and, uh, they're not making a lot of money because that's the way things were. You just, you worked until it was over and then you sold your shop and that was where you made your little bit of money. And then you, uh, went and kind of puttered in your garden. Yeah. I mean, the stores here are so different than stores that most people encounter today. I mean, first of all, they are just packed from floor to ceiling with stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just stuff everywhere. The thing that really struck me is like everybody goes into one of these stores and they only buy like one thing. Yeah, they're there for one, like a can of milk. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the I one. I need that, a like, button like, to match this jacket. They had like a five minute conversation about the can of milk, like what milk you could get. And it's like, I would just never have it never happened today. Yeah. That it was like 30 cents. Yeah. She's like, okay, I guess, you know, <laughs> yeah, you don't and, have and the, this is always, I mean, this is very true in Europe in general. Like you go to the, the bread store to get the bread, you go to the, yep. the, the, the meat store to get the meat. Um, but it's just really, um, you know, like now we go to the supermarket and we load up our grocery cart with all the food that we're going to need for the week. And, uh, that's just not, not how, how they did things. And in a lot of places still how they do things in Europe. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fascinating. That's the other thing I like is that that's a, you know, it's a different, it's different from my world, which is another fantastic thing about this documentary. Um, I'm sure, people here watching it were fascinated by the way things are being done there. Um, and we only had those types of, you know, that type of store was only kind of associated with Americana here in the United States, almost pre-war. You think of Andy Griffith and like, there's the one, the one place you get this and there's the one barber Floyd and there's the one, you know, you had all these kind of like small, small places that had this. And then, you look at like a big city like New York and 
it still was like that. You had the meat district. You had the, you had yeah. cobblers. You had people who made shoes and fixed shoes. I remember growing up in my town, and you know we'd go to bring shoes to get fixed, and I loved the smell of that place. It's all leather and like you know just these tools, these arcane tools that I have no idea what they do. And this guy's just sitting there, like, shaving the bottoms of shoes off to make them even again. Yeah. And it was just fascinating. And knowing that that completely died out and is now a bottle redemption place, it just – it's like that's one of those things that kind of breaks your heart. Like, there's a lost art form that's just going away because there's no need for it. We make everything disposable yep, now. You throw out the shoes and get new shoes. Get new ones. Back then, no. You could just have them resold. You could wear the same. You could own. You could generally, generationally pass down a pair of shoes, or a suit, a well-made suit. You would pass that down to three generations and just always <laughs> get it fixed. Yeah. No, I, there's still shoe repair shops in New York City. If you go down the right streets, there's you know a random store somewhere that some old person is probably holding on continuing yep. to work at the store they're grandfathered in for whatever reason to the rent yeah <laughs> it's just um you know that's just one of those like it's sandwiched between an art gallery and a you know fancy hot dog place <laughs> he was just waiting for daniel day lewis to take over it the last uh, cobbler <laughs> yeah exactly i guess we can talk about the way that varda um takes these disparate stores and makes a theme out of them by putting them together by like okay well here's all these storefronts and here's all these stores and the people that are inside of them and see how they're all connected on the surface level of being shopkeepers who own these shops but then throughout the course of the documentary um, she starts to ask them questions and we start to see that almost all of them are from out of the city have moved here to open up a shop or to open up a store. Um, almost all of them are foreigners to that uh, area. No one yeah. is like, I grew up here. I don't think anybody says that they're from Paris, right? No one is from Paris, yeah. either from south of France. Uh, I think there's that the grocers was all Algerian men. Yep. Um, it was absolutely fascinating to see that, like, you know, and this is the fear, right? That gentrification you're talking about. People are going to come in and homogenize the neighborhoods and or the, you know, the fear of foreigners, the fear of people coming in and taking over things. And it's just that's absolutely nonsense that those are the people that make the communities thriving. They're the ones who build communities. And then she has, in turn, built a community out of these shops by putting them together as a family in a documentary and then also uh kind of doing something that most documentary like hardcore documentarians would sneer at which is she hired a magician to come to town <laughs> them all in a magic so to show. get them all to be in a magic <laughs> show and then uses that as a central theme to explore what these tricks are and how they relate to everyone's professions it's absolutely fascinating it works so well like, you know, I don't know what detail she went into. Like, all right, listen, we get a butcher, so I need you to do the song A Lady in Half <laughs> And we've got this lady and put her in front of the Mona Lisa because she smiles exactly like her. It's like I don't know what level of directorial uh, uh, precision she used in those in that 
or if it was just totally like here's his show and boy this works perfectly for everything she wants to do and because it was it was absolutely fascinating how well she was able to play off of like the magician's hands doing some sort of prestidigitation and then cuts to someone getting their hair cut and the hands are in the same flaring motion of like as they quickly cut uh it was absolutely beautiful she did a she that's once again she has a amazing eye for composition amazing yeah. eye for matching like from those uh, early short films where she yeah, was Loka doing Moof, yeah yeah just finding sure. stuff and putting them together and uh you know just compare and contrast or juxtaposing or or similarities in stuff it was just absolutely it was super it was super fun like just it felt so there's so much life in this film there's so much liveliness i mean even yeah. though there's decay and it's all coming to an end and you can kind of feel the sadness like basically the blue thistle woman is going to be the end of all these people like it's the <laughs> same kind of like slow this is what the end's going to look like for every one of your shops uh, even though you know that little bit of sadness is in the edges of the frame Everything, all the liveliness, the smiles, the laughter, the, the the conversations that they're having with customers and with each other or with Agnes, there it's just absolutely beautiful and it's so much life, so much joy um, within the frame. It's it's abs it's 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 amazing that she's able to capture that in such a vivacious and fun way. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think it's really interesting. The extra that she included on the um, on the DVD for this film of shooting the the concert in modern time. Oh yeah, um, that that was just held on the street that she captured. It's it's primarily a bunch of toddlers dancing, and it felt to me like such a uh, enrichment of the original film in the circle, the cheesy circle of life way, but it doesn't come off as cheesy and at oh, all. Come, yeah. Um, it's, it's very much like a representation of this sort of, you know, the ever present nature of this, of a community of a, of a neighborhood of, of these storefronts even, and the ability to take public space and create something that is functional and useful for, its inhabitants is, um, you know, I think very powerful in the film. Um, I, I think, you know, the woman in the, in the blue thistle is really fascinating. And I think it's inevitable that there's a little bit of pity there, but there's all, it's also, there's, you know, it's a, it's a sweetness. Um, mm. and especially like you can see the genuine affection that some of these customers have for her. Um, and the story that Varda tells about getting flowers, people people paying for flowers to be sent to her, um, is just like it's such a beautiful story. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's a uh, like the melon. I mean, just the way her husband dotes after her, even though like you know, you've seen so many crotchety old couples that are just like rolling their eyes and angry that you know someone's you know someone is not doing what they're supposed to. They're forgetful. I mean, we see it quite often and to see just the genuine care and compassion and love for his wife, 
um, you know, when they go for a walk, they go to the butcher shop to get a piece of meat and they're opening the store. And just like he's he's as fascinated with her as we are. I think there's that great bit where she kind of she steps outside and he goes, yeah, I don't know what it is. And every night around six yeah. o'clock, she just wants to go outside. She never leaves. She doesn't go anywhere. She just steps outside. I used to worry, but now I see she doesn't. She doesn't go anywhere, so it's okay. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just a, it's he doesn't try to explain like what's wrong with her, what's going on, or you know, just it's a it's a matter of fact, it's this fact of nature, and it's just okay, and we're okay with it. Yeah, I mean that that part where she she wanders outside, I was struck by in this movie the fact that you know I don't think that these people like go on vacation no or or even really like when they get home that they're necessarily like doing much you know yeah like these are people who they wake up in the morning in the case of the baker extremely early in the morning he they go to work they're done with work they go home they eat some dinner they go to sleep they repeat the next day you know, maybe they take Sunday off. I think one even one person in the in the movie even says, you know, Sunday is for TV. You watch a little TV and you go to bed. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's not like that 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 level of just pure like no ambition. I feel like is not is not a thing that people have anymore. And I think part yeah. of that is just like you go home and you go on the internet or you know like you you're aware of the internet even if you aren't don't have access to the internet at home. Like there's people obviously who don't have time to do anything else because they work three jobs and they're struggling and all that kind of stuff, but the, even that there's that that even that is a struggle. You know, these people, they don't even have struggle in a sense yeah. because it's just like, this is what they do. And like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. Yeah, that was a, there was an article I read recently that was talking about the differences between like American jobs and most like jobs. in. it was about France because uh, the French are always baffled that when someone goes on strike here, everyone doesn't go on strike and shut everything down and get yeah. things solved because that's how they do things there. Like if the teachers are on strike, every union member is on strike and everyone is supporting it and everyone's out in the streets until things get fixed um, because that's how – because they have a very different idea. They don't tie their identities to their jobs like we do here. They – they know that they're working – this is what the article is saying, not my personal opinion. They, they know that they're going to work for 40 years and then they're going to retire. Yeah. And that's when they can start their lives. So you have to give into the system and work your job and you don't care about it. It's not your life. So that's why you can take – that's why you can work a four-day week. You can work six-hour days It's because it doesn't matter the part you're you're just doing your time so you can get to your retirement and then live your life <laughs> yeah where here as we have retirees who don't want to stop because right. they've identified themselves as a worker so long that they don't know how to be anything but and so we have worked really hard with our capitalist society to engender these people to believe that 
this is what everything amounts to and this is all you're good at and this is all you should be doing. Well, because we're all capitalists now. It's no longer like the capitalists who are like, you know, making the workers do what they want to do. Like we're supposed to, you know, have a side hustle Mm -hmm. or be like trying to fit like five great tips for how to get a get that promotion oh yeah well or, that's you know where's the next gig gonna come cause, from because we have all of us have the potential to be millionaires don't yeah. you know that we all right. all we have to do is have one great right idea or yep. hit it rich somewhere or it's just it's a fallacy and it's it's crazy because that's what we all are i remember what i was gonna say about earlier is that so we were talking about the magician and how agnes has uh, brought all the townspeople to enjoy the show together and it there's such a joy to seeing these people all together in a room it's almost like a precursor to this nostalgia uh, this wave of nostalgia fueled films i'm thinking something like a uh, a wes anderson film where every character you've met in the movie ends up in the last <laughs> scene together at some sort of play dance um event what have you and that they're all there enjoying themselves together even though that they're all different people they weren't in the same scenes together like that's what that that feeling was there for and you know it works better than a lot of times in other movies it's not cheapened but there's something completely enjoyable about seeing everyone together having a good time and that's that's what that magic show is like even if you know which takes you right into that kind of that street performance that you were talking about with the with the community it's just seeing people together having fun it's just always it always is a joy um we go back to uh le bonaire when uh she's at the dance the dance hall with her friends and you're seeing the scene of everyone changing partners and dancing mm. and having a good time le point court where they're having the festival and the dance at the end yeah. just sh- these bringing people together for joyous a joyous moment something to take them out of their normal lives and just seeing people kind of like really get into something different for a sec it it'll i think that'll always work its magic on me there's just something about that it's like i'm a soft touch when it comes and to I, that and i think stuff. some of them were initially reluctant to do it right i mean they were yeah. kind of like not sure about the whole magician thing and i will say like sometimes when the magician is doing his tricks i'm a little bit like can we get back to the stores already like (laughs) but i i totally agree the way that she she you know interweaves the magician with like you know you know doing a trick with the particular person showing the person in the shop moving back and forth is um very effortless and uh and striking um so i think you know by by sort of sheer willpower she's able to make that that sort of framing device work um and then of course like you know i don't think of her as like a showman to end all showmen when it comes to filmmakers but Mm -hmm. opening with the magician uh yeah especially like tying that into daguerre like the connection to the actual daguerreotype um and obviously like the pun on daguerre daguerreotypes yeah um, like it's just very um 
clever and I think effortless in its ability to kind of work as work in multiple meanings. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that it makes, I remember in one of the interviews, I can't remember if it was in the book or in the documentary on the disc. Um, she talks about how she didn't know how to pull this thing together. So she had booked the magician in hopes of that's where she would be able to meet the community and kind of go from there, like use that as a jumping off point to go find people. But then everything was working so well, she still had the magician coming. And so she just spent (laughs) her time getting, getting the people that she had been filming and had relationships with to go and see them, to make sure they go and see the magician. And it's just absolutely, you know, you know, whatever stagecraft she used to move people around to get that to happen. It was just fascinating just seeing all these people have a great time. Um, I, I really loved the story in the, um, in the follow-up about the skater who, Oh yeah. For, you uh, know, was it the Rue de Guerre when she goes back to that, uh, the 2005 short? Yeah. 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 She, the skater who is featured in this movie, she's practicing to be a figure skater she actually ended up going on to have a career as a skater. She traveled all over the world with like a performance group. Um, but then when she retired, she uh, started working at the Louvre. And in in a scene, you know, in the magician scene, there's a big um, picture of the Mona Lisa hanging behind the magician. And she's in, you know, prominent in, in that sequence. And... Um, she ended up working at the Louvre and is often stationed in the room where the Mona Lisa uh, <laughs> is, which I just thought was just an incredible story. Oh, that's it's absolutely fantastic! Like just that that uh, happenstance that that would be the 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 this where her life would end up uh, and how how beautiful that that works out is uh, is absolutely fascinating. Like that's the kind of stuff that you if you wrote it as a script, everyone would just roll their yeah. eyes, you know, <laughs> Totally, <laughs> man. Um, so I, I think now is a good time to talk about what, what Anya Svarta says that this movie is about. Um, I mean, I, I won't, I won't say that she says that like definitively, this is what the movie is. About, yeah. But I, I think it is interesting. She talks a lot about, um, class but also in particular politics and the fact that she you know was was living in a society that was sort of counter to um her own political views and she viewed a lot of these people even though she interacted with them on a regular basis and was friendly with them as being essentially the political uh, enemy, um, or at least the sort of like the, you know, across the aisle as it were in, in France and sort of thought of these people as, as, you know, being conservative as being opposed to, um, you know, uh, being, being anti-choice being, uh, against the feminist movement. And she wanted to sort of delve into the the psyche of these people 
and also I think a little bit like reveal their emptiness. I mean, yeah. I think that's essentially what the dream sequence is about that. She doesn't see these people as being similar to her and is separating herself from them in a critical fashion. Yeah. Um, I guess like, I don't, I don't have like a pointed question on this, but I did want to bring it up and sort of talk about, you know, I guess, first of all, like, do you think that the film can be both of these things? And do you think it succeeds at that, at what Varda is talking about as well as it, I think both of us feel like it succeeds as a sort of loving portrait of these people in this community. I think, uh, if she set out with that intention, I think just like our views of the people that she got into, uh, you know, got into relationships with by making this documentary, I think she also kind of had a, a difference of opinion. Uh, I think, I mean, I think, I think she. I mean, there's nothing in there that is kind of like, look at how horrible these people are. Look at how vapid. Even the dreams, like, it just makes me feel, it makes me feel a little sad that some of these people don't have, like, dream dreams. Like, they don't have these ideals or goals that they want to do. But, like I was saying with this generational trades craftsman stuff, there are people that, like, their goal is to marry someone who has a store and then they're taken care of. That's their, that's it. That's all that's expected of them. That's all they wanted. And so when you have to work every day from store open to store close, like you said, you know, they wake up, they open the store up, they work all day, they go home. Maybe they watch TV, they drink a glass of wine, eat some bread and go to bed. Um, I think, when you think about it in terms of her wanting to find the vapidness of this group of people who are politically opposed, opposite of what she believes in, you know, uh, Varda was very much like, you know, out in the counterculture protesting, um, marching, always, always had her finger on the pulse of kind of like uh, feminist uh, causes and what to champion and, uh, making these uh, artistic point, like, you know, as an artist, that's kind of what you do, right? You take the, you take the world, the lens and you, you point it back at itself and you try to help people change their minds about things or open their minds up. And I think at the end of the day, you kind of can't be mad at these people who don't have the luxury of being able to think about those things. You, you know, maybe they vote that way because that's just how they were always taught that they need to vote that way. And then they don't they don't think about it because their brains are completely taken up with the amount of work they have to do, the daily grind, and they just want their pension and they just want it to be done with. And they kind of don't really have a mind for politics or what's going on. Yeah. So it's, you know, by the end of it. I'm sure she might have set out one way, but then when you get to the end of it, it's like, well, I mean, these, <laughs> like, I can't really fault them. They're, 
they're just doing their part. They're doing what they what the only thing that they know how to do. It's not like they're being uh, vindictive about it or hurtful about it or spiteful about it. They're just they're idle. They don't do anything about it because yeah. they're just doing their job. So I think that's the hardest thing when it comes to changing hearts and minds about uh, about any sort of political cause is that once again people fear change and to make them stand up and pay attention to something different or new to be able to change their minds in a political way it takes so much inertia to do that and for Anyas to want to use this documentary as a means to show that working class and how they're not you know they're a part of the problem and not a part of the solution and then to see that <laughs> they're just kind of their own thing it's a uh, it's a uh, it's very interesting um that was in the uh, she she said she said that within the interview on the in the book right is that what she did yeah. yeah she said it in other places too though i mean i think like it's funny because at one point she says like these people have politics i vehemently disagree with um, but I, I got the sense that they didn't really have much politics to disagree yeah. with. I mean, the, the, there is, I think for anybody who's sort of looking to make the world a better place or make the system that we live in more fair or get rid of the system and replace it with a better one, there is inherently a need for imagination mm-hmm. to do that. Because you're trying to do something that's never been done before. And I think these people were showed in that dream sequence and then and 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 in contrast to when they are talking about why when they moved to Paris, or I think in particular when they met the their uh spouse. Yep. Um that they can be very animated, that they can enjoy life, that they can be willing to talk about things, but they are very concrete things and very specific and personal things. And I think when they when when she tried to attack attack any kind of topic of uh, abstraction, she hit a brick wall. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it can be very easy, especially in our society, to say, you know, the, the real problem with uh, that's preventing any kind of real change are the, the people on the hard opposite side of, a, uh, you know, the political spectrum from you. Um, but the vast majority of people in this country just don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. They don't vote. They don't pay attention to politics they don't know who the vice president is no they just don't want to be a part of it they want to lead their lives and be happy and that's it like everything else is secondary the newspapers and annoyance you turn off the news and you just live your life that's half of maine yeah well it's half of almost every state i mean uh it's not uncommon um so you know I guess to me, like there is that undercurrent in the film. And I think, you know, Varda is inherently a political filmmaker. Mm. So it's very difficult 
to not read politics into any, uh, you know, into any movie that she makes. Um, but I, I feel like it's tough here because these people don't really give her an inch that she can turn into a mile. Yeah. I think, I think in the hands of someone like a, uh, Michael Moore or a, uh, yeah. or a, uh, geez, um, Errol Morris, they would hammer these people until or a they Dinesh got... D'Souza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would hammer these people until they got the, the sound bites they were looking for to prove their point. Yeah. And I think Varda was, tr- you know, probably tried to coax some topics to kind of point out. But in the end of the day, you know, I think when you don't, ha- when you have a group of people that, you know, their lives are those is that umbilical uh, around their store like there is no going out and seeing the bigger world there is no dreams of seeing a bigger place their dream was moving to this place and that was it dream accomplished and so it's hard to kind of it's car it's hard to kind of continue that inquisitive nature to want to explore more of the world and come into contact with so many different things that help broaden your perspective in your opinion on things or, you know, or helps sway or change your opinion on things. And so when you're, you know, you got to think about like all these people are in their sixties and seventies in 1975. So that means they're growing up in the uh, post-war, Yeah, you know, women are still their Their goal is to become moms or housewives or, work for, you know, like the baker's wife, the butcher's wife, you know, they work the shop for, you know, for the guy who's doing the job. And a lot of them didn't, like with the exception of the hairdressers, a lot of them didn't talk about having children or yeah having families. So, you know, it's hard to have, it's hard to talk about, it's, it's always one of those things, right? It's hard to talk about abortion rights to a person who can't have a baby and would just automatically be in the position of, well, you know, why would you want, like, I can't have one. Why would you want to get rid of yours? I would die to have a baby, you know? So like when you have like that kind of mentality that can't see beyond their wants and needs, it's, you know, it's hard to have an open dialogue about a bigger picture. And that's where exposure gets into the, it gets into the mix. If you're, if your umbilical keeps you tied to that store and all you do is walk the two blocks to your apartment and then back to your store again, and you shop at the same butcher shop, you shop at the same boulangerie, you get your bread at the same place. You don't, you don't expand that world. And so because your world isn't expanding, you don't expand your ideas, your thoughts, or even then start having inklings of what dreams you could possibly pursue. Because at this point, you've pursued your dream and you got it. You know, I want to move yeah. to Paris and I want to be a hairdresser. And I got that. And now I'm done. I mean, the the baker, he says, which, by the way, I love the baker. Oh, He's like my style icon. I want to be that guy so bad. So good, right? Uh, yeah, amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, he says, like, at one point he was born in 1910. Yeah. Imagine being born in 1910 in France. 
like you've got some real serious shit ahead of you oh yeah so if you're able to become a baker survive two world wars and a nazi occupation um like you got it made yeah yeah (laughs) you want to spend your you want to spend your time baking bread circles yeah sweet do it to it bud you've earned it um so i i yeah i mean i i wonder if this is just a, a situation where you know i mean i think like i said i think anything that she does is going to be political i think she she bumped up against the limitations that she had placed on herself in terms yeah. of of the scope of the film um and i think s- smartly didn't push it yeah into the text of the movie yeah like like we were saying with like an errol morris or something like she didn't yeah. tr- force force the issue to try to make her point and I think it does it wonders it 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 does the picture a great justice because now looking back at it, you can see a lot of the political stuff that's in it inherently in it. There's a class there's a class system in there, there's a classism. You have the Algerian uh, grocers who Yeah you know five you know five six guys who are all living together and working together in that tiny little space you know as they try to help help you know other family members get over there and and help them and get them in the shop and when we go to that 2005 Rue de Guerre uh, revisit uh, one of the guys who's working behind the counter is now the owner of that store so that's yeah. a generational store you know he kept it he kept it alive and he kept it going and you know that's there's a pride in that for him, you know. He 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 lived his dream, you know. I need to get out of this yep. place and go do this thing. Meanwhile, you have which is a perfect example of I think one of the problems with modern the modern world right now is if you go to the uh, what happened to the bakery that the baker owned, um, exchanged hands a few times and ended up being bought by a guy who has a chain of bakeries. Yeah, and it's gone from a guy who's a baker while owning his own bake shop to a guy who wants to manage people baking goods for him, which I think is one of the number one things is no one wants to do the job. Everyone wants to be the boss of the job to tell people what to do. Yeah, And that's where that's where a lot of our problems is. No one wants to be the plumber. Someone wants to own the plumbing business so they can tell the plumbers what to do. And so there's a you lose that pride and craftsmanship and that name that is associated with a job well done because once you build that name and your name is associated with a good job, like you don't have that because if you're never the one there doing the work, you can't you can't build that reputation, you know. It's like me finding the best contractor in all of Arlington and he just shows up to give me what the price is going to be and then he sends a bunch of right. you know mows over to you know smash things up and <laughs> not a lot not line up any of my shingles correctly and then i have to get him to come back and redo it and then we have a fight about it you this know, isn't just, a specific no 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 this is just, just totally a, i'm just throwing this out there yeah. as something that uh <laughs> you know but you know that's that whole th- that's that whole thing like when you're a tradesman and and uh you're working to become a master at your craft 
there's you know hours and hours of technique and building that goes into it and then in the modern world there's a lot of like i want to skip that portion and just be the person who's in charge a boss and it was funny my wife told me a story about uh there's a there's a uh, at a farm that my uh my grand my my father-in-law owns um he hired this guy when he first bought the farm in 1970 something and this guy has worked that farm all the way he's still there he's still working the farm and he that's what he always wanted to be he just wanted to be a farmer he came from a place where he could never be own his own farm um, they never owned land and he couldn't afford cattle so he all he could do was be hired on to work a farm and my father-in-law is the type of guy who he'll take care of that guy for the rest of his life and that's just how he is because that guy has given all of his years of his life to helping him on this farm but that guy's daughter when he tried to help her go to school and help her like figure out what she wants to do with her life her only answer was i don't know what i want to do i just want to be a boss <laughs> and it was like it didn't matter i just want to be the one who tells people what to do and i don't want to have to do anything and so like how how do you how do you build a society when the goal is to be a boss when just you got to have workers and if everyone wants to be a boss then you're never going to get anywhere so it was very interesting seeing that in that dark in the in the follow-up documentary that yeah the bakery's still there and there's like a, a veneer to it to make it look old world when you know you couldn't get more old world than what the guy originally had right and the idea is that i'm i'm a boss i i it's, ru- the, it's the image of like old-timey paris yeah as opposed to actual actually what it is which you know if you were a baker and you owned a bake store you're the guy who was baking and this guy is not baking this guy is just selling the idea of what that other guy's life really was and i find that absolutely fascinating but also troubling that that's that's kind of like the way the world is moving yeah and i think also ties into like the whole daguerre of it all which i think is just <clears throat> pretty incredible that that was i i mean it's what it's just one of those ha- again a happy accident like this movie has a lot of them but just that she she lived on rudiger <laughs> that that she made a movie about you know capturing this moment in time i mean we should also mention like the the sort of almost like daguerreotype style um framing picture portraits of these uh shop owners that she uh, inserts throughout the film yep um which are you know i think just objectively beautiful and uh well framed and fun to look at um but again a lot uh, reminds us uh, you know that we're watching a movie but also that like were able to sort of go behind the facade of these people's lives that like if you went up to their shop and you saw them you walked in you lived the experience of being in their shop you maybe bought uh some perfume or you bought some meat that had been sitting out (laughs) at room temperature with with an open window to the street (laughs) it's cool it's cool you're gonna fry that up don't worry (laughs) um 
you know, you'd get you'd get a sense of of sort of what what it was like, but you wouldn't get to know these people the way that you get to know them in in this film, their history and their relationships and um, you know, their feelings about their shop, if not their feelings about the world or about their their sort of personal feelings or thoughts. Um, you do get to kind of you do get the how, what, why, and where um, of of their experience, you know. Or I guess I should say you get the sort of how, what, where, and when, but you don't necessarily get the why. Yeah. Yeah, it's a. It's. It's it's that's what makes this documentary so magical in my mind like that that's that warm hug you're talking about just yeah. being able to be with these people and be comfortable because if you were standing in that store and everyone was just staring off in the distance and not talking it, you know maybe you'd be happy but chances are you'd be like oh man what are we doing let's uh, yeah this is weird well everyone... it's true like there's i mean um wiseman talks about how you know, people are always like, well, how do you get them to like, forget that there's a camera? And he's like, by day two, they don't even notice. Yeah, They're just like doing whatever they want to do. And like, you know, I, I, to your point, earlier point about uh, how it would be really difficult to make a documentary like this. Now I do feel like everybody would think that they needed to like perform for the camera yes. to a certain degree, you know, like you couldn't have those moments of them just sitting around and waiting for another customer because they would know that the camera was there. So they'd start like doing some sweeping or they would yeah. be like, Hey honey. Well, like... the, the, uh, the, the driving instructor is a perfect example of that character. Yeah. He, he's always performative. As soon as he's, he lights his face lights up, he's posing. He's, I mean, between him, like overdoing it. And then the barber, the hair, the hairdresser constantly looking for a cool way to pose. Like he's always like <laughs> hand on the counter with a bit of a lean hand on the hip, hand <laughs> off the hip in the pocket. Wait, no, in the hip. And, you know, it's like he's trying to be the models that are on the walls for the examples of the haircuts. Um, you know, it's just great. He, You can see that he has a bit of discomfort and like doesn't know. Like I always think of that from Talladega nights where someone says you need to do something with your hands. I don't know what to do with my hands. (laughs) (laughs) That moment that he just doesn't know how to do it. And, uh, uh, it's, it's hilarious. And so that's like, that's that, that, that's that whole thing. Like, I think this is, this is a perfect age where it's, you know, it's, these people had never heard of Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame theory because they're just living their lives. And so, just forgetting about the camera being there and just kind of going about their day is, uh, is really, really a beautiful thing. And we didn't, uh, one of the other places we didn't talk about is the clock repair shop. Oh yeah. That place was absolutely fat. Another, another like lost art form completely gone. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating. And you just hear like, (laughs) I think what the lady says at one point, she's like, Oh, it's, you know, you can tell when the clocks are running at different times because the they all get out of sync and that's when I put the metronome on and I try to make them back to normal oh, or yeah. oh just that idea that you're in there all the time hearing that clicking and uh, yeah well and he he was one of the people who had the most concrete responses to the dream question which was 
that he dreams about clocks that he can't fix yeah like a one if he's working on a particular t- particularly tough clock oh. that he'll dream about it and that's a you know that's a vocation that's like that's his job like that's yeah. what he, he's gonna do forever and he's so it like it invades his dreams. I used to have a rule. I don't know if I said this on this podcast. Maybe I have. I used to have this rule that as soon as I dreamt about my job, I'd quit it. And like I went through a lot of jobs early on, and then like after a while, I was like, okay, I can't just quit every job because I dream about it. I was like, I was like, they can't take space in my mind. It's just yeah. work. They they don't right. deserve that. But uh, no, eventually you got to uh, eventually you dream about that job and you just deal with it. Yeah. Um, anything else on on this? I mean, I, we 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 touched on the 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 wonderful follow up um, documentary that she made uh, for the DVD in the in the two thousands. Um, there's there's a number of really fascinating extras with uh, that are provided with this film um, in the in the complete Varda set. Yeah. Um, the 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 Daguerre documentary. Um, that I, you know, with the with the two scholars uh, at the at the show um, of Daguerre Prince, uh, mm. I just thought was fascinating and really cool. Uh, the one I really liked was the uh, it's uh, Varda and her cinematographer watching yeah. scenes and talking. And yes, it's only only Agnes Varda. Like they're watching the scene where the guy is buying the button. And they said it was absolutely fascinating. There we are, crammed into a corner with a camera, and this dude just wanders in, never even Doesn't acknowledges that we're yeah. there, <laughs> goes and buys a button, and like they're just fascinating that this person is just so in his own head that he's not not you know registering what's going on there. And she goes, and then like while they're watching that scene and they're talking about this, yeah. Bart just goes. I wish you panned down and got some of the yeah. buttons. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's, oh my God, to be like chastised like that, like 40 years after the movie's <laughs> made and uh, be told, oh, I wish you got the buttons. But then like within a breath second later, the camera starts to kind of pan left and then someone else enters. And she's yeah. like, I still don't know how you had the wherewithal to kind of like the presence to know that someone was about to enter the frame and you had to move the camera. She goes, yeah, sometimes you just feel like something's about to happen and you've got to make room for it. And I'm like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Sometimes you know something's going to happen. you got to make room for it in your life and you just got to like pan that camera and hope that something that comes in. And uh, oh, it's absolutely, it was great. And that was the first time she worked with a female cinematographer. Yeah. And, you know, just that... She says, you know, I really think it helped it helped put a lot of people's mind at ease. And she said it also helped give a sense of a different uh, perspective, like everything felt more warm and natural as opposed to kind of like very, you know, composed like she usually does. Everything feels like naturally composed as opposed to forced and uh you know, holding that camera for all day long. It was all handheld. That was the other thing. There was no tripods there. They were, they did everything handheld so they could be quick and move and very mobile. And uh, so, you know, holding that camera all day, That's a, and that was a heavy camera back then. Yeah. So all, all the power to her. Yeah, that, that part where Varda is, is sort of like 
overanalyzing her own movie. It was like <laughs> definitely I didn't make a lot of movies when I was when I was younger, but like every time I would rewatch anything I ma- I made, I would just be so horrified with oh. all the like mistakes that I made that I was like, I, this isn't for me. I'm not doing this anymore. Yes, yeah, I I 100% agree. I go back and I can see like, ugh, why didn't I pan? Oh, yeah, soft focus. Why didn't I focus that better? This oh, two more stops of exposure that would have worked out perfectly. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. It's a. It's a. I love. I do love that she had the forethought and the appreciation of what special features could mean to her movies. And that, you know, we've talked about it before. She, she produces all the, all the, the bonus content for a lot of her own movies. Um, and it's, it's fascinating like that. She, you know, she has a bit of that showmanship of, you know, uh, of correct, correcting, correcting, correcting herself for what the movie ended up being so it sounds like she meant that all along which is fine but at least she she approaches her films and looks at them again there's so many like you you hear so many directors say oh no i've never go back to one of my films um and to hear her be like no i went back to all of them and i made documentaries about each one of them because you know this dvd thing you know you can put all kinds of shit on there so yeah. let's let's do that and well, why, and, why and am i going to hire someone case, else like, to do it? <laughs> it it sort of doubles down on the the sense of nostalgia um and, and that that's something that she continued to do on her films um you know whether it's the drive through uh the streets of paris that mimics uh, mm-hmm. cleo's um journey or, uh, you know, the, the lead actor of uh, Le Bonheur going back to the town uh, hilariously. Um, or, or here, you know, just being able to see uh, years later. And, you know, she would do this with, with um, Young Girls of Rochefort for, um, for, for Demi um, in a couple of decades as well. Um, she has a, a keen sense of that time passing and the feeling of uh you know change and loss and i think in this case it's especially apt because that is already baked into the original movie yeah no i agree yeah and she she does these beautiful things like tries to recreate an exact angle from a shot so you can see how things have changed and i think she does it twice she does the recreates the angle of a shot she did from her movie and then also shows that this is the daguerreotype that I of that area that I tried to reframe so it's like a frame yeah. within a fr- like a past and a past and a past yeah so cool it's it's absolutely fascinating and that yeah and she's uh she's like one year one or two years away from actually starting her own production company at this point um, because right. you know we've this whole time we've uh, all of her movies have been either she raised the money for the first one people commissioned her to do others uh, you know she got the French government to pay for one you know as part of their how they how they usually produce movies is you know kind of like the British government you get a grant from them to make a movie and then you make your movie. Um, and then this one we talked earlier how it was a German production, um, and so after this um, she starts to realize that 
she could easily be producing her own movies and you know just securing the finances and doing all that and so uh, very soon after this movie has been released um, I think even maybe after no no I think I want to say the next movie is the first one under that banner uh, Cinema Tamaris um, her production company so it's pretty yeah you know this that's that's right yeah and i think i think right yeah this is this was the last movie that was kind of financed from somewhere else and then she started just kind of taking full control over everything she does which is uh which is great like that's kind of you know she's been fighting for that and now she's kind of just doing it herself and uh i think that full embrace of that and no longer kind of being at the whim of uh, other money people uh, kind of really propels her forward uh, in the future of her in her next movies. Yeah, and I believe this is her longest gap um, for making a film uh, from even if you include Nausicaa, which was not released or finished. Um, you know, it was six years um, in between that film being made and and this one being released. Um, so you know she had a kid um you know she was back and forth the u.s yeah shuttling back and forth Demi made a couple of movies in that time period um and uh otherwise you know was kind of stunted in her ability to get anything made so um fortunately uh the the next couple of years became more fruitful for her although i think there's actually a kind of a big gap between one sings the other dozen in her next film so where are you going to slot this film kind of curious um i need i i will i'm i was slated to watch it for a third time tonight but then things moved around a bit and i couldn't do it um, so because of that, um, it falls right underneath Cleo for me because Cleo is still too important a film. So, um, and number seven, I've got La Point Court, number six, Lay's Creatures, number five, Nausicaa, number four, Lions, Love and Lies, uh, number three, Daguerreotypes. Wow. And then I have Cleo and Le Bonaire. Um, it's, it's... It easily could push Cleo out of the mix. Oh, wow. Um, like, just... But that's the thing, right? I have to... I need more viewings because part of me embraced... I think I think in the last... What was the... We did a series... I can't remember what series it was where I picked the warm embrace over the technical astounding technicality of a movie because just of i prefer i prefer feelings <laughs> like so this movie could easily replace cleo because the warm feelings i have for yeah. the way that daguerreotypes is filmed and the kind of the the world that they're living in is uh i could see myself going back to that all the time as kind of like a comfort food uh whereas cleo is so well put together that it's a technical feat that i really enjoy as well but you know le bonaire still right now is the super eye-opening like (laughs) 
I can't believe that yeah. this isn't the number one movie that everyone is watching right now. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I've got it right underneath Cleo. I think it's uh, I think it's it beats Lions, Love and Lies in terms of just uh, the content. I really appreciated the uh, the look into a community, into a place, into these people's lives, and just as a person who is a collector looking at all these people having all their nice little things lined up and placed perfectly <laughs> places just, you know, gives me a complete sense of joy. So how about you? Where's the fall for you? Um, I hear you about the line being lined up, although the, I, one thing I didn't mention the people like that have to set up the outside of their shop uh-huh. Like the process that they do every morning. The, the, is the just... hardware store people who oh have to fold God. up the shutters. Oh, up everything. soul crushing. Oh. Like it just like the amount of, and then they have to do it. They, they have to do it all in reverse at the end of the day. And it's so beautiful because they know, they know what roles they need to play. Yeah. He yeah. carries this thing. She does that thing. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a big one. And, um, uh, so, so I have Nausicaa at the bottom. Yeah. Um, point court. This creatures and then Daguerre. Okay. Um, so so I'm slotting this. I would say just under Lion's Love. Uh huh. Um, with with then uh, you know Cleo and and Bonaire in the um, in the top two slots. Um, I I think that this is a, a thoroughly enjoyable movie. I just think like in terms of of you know it's it's very modest in in its ambition which I appreciate mm-hmm. while I'm watching it and, and love, but I think those three films um, surpass it in terms of, of you know, uh, the effectiveness of what they're doing and the impact that they have on me. Yep, I can see that completely. It's, uh, yeah, that's where I, that's where feelings get involved, buddy. This no, is what happens. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I uh, I need to watch Nausicaa again. Like I I have it above yeah. those other two. I had to I gotta watch Lace Creatures again. We have so many movies <laughs> to watch. I also have to watch like I have to comp- <laughs> I have to uh, brush up on like revisit all my Demi, so that I'm yeah. prepared for when she has to talk about Demi and we can you know so we got yeah, a lot true. of movies. It's it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> it's good stuff <laughs> and well so next next time we will be talking about one sings the other doesn't which is you know certainly <clears throat> i mean she only made two maybe three features in the 70s but this is her big one um it's it's a uh full kind of studio production um and uh it should be very interesting it's very it's a very different um type of movie than she's made so far and I think with that, we're complete for another week. 